your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Steve Simpson. Steve is a former senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and currently the Ayn Rand Institute's Director of Legal Studies. Steve, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Good to be here, Don. So today's topic is going to be a little different from a lot of the ones we cover. I want to discuss campaign finance restrictions, and I want to discuss them specifically in the context of the argument over economic inequality. So I guess the first question is, how in the heck are these two seemingly disparate topics even related? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say they're related in a lot of ways, but uh, let me try to cut right to the essence of it. Um, first, they're related, I would say, in that in order for those who are opposing income inequality to get what they want, they ultimately have to control politics. And controlling money in politics, which is the sort of common way that people talk about campaign finance wrong uh, reform, is the path to controlling what politics does. So to put it kind of bluntly, if you want to make everybody equal, you need government power to do that. If you want government power, one of the paths to government power is to control elections, which they think uh, money in politics has a lot to do with. And it does, but there's a lot to, a lot more to say about that. So let's start with that. You say a little bit more about what their claim is about the role of money in politics and then give us kind of an overview of how you think about the role of money in politics. Yes. Yeah, so the general view of those who support campaign finance laws, and you can kind of see this throughout the, the nation and through the culture, um, that is different people have different views of money in politics, but they all tend to coalesce around uh, the same sort of view, which is this. Uh, money influences and corrupts politics is kind of the way uh, that the, the common view is held. So you've often heard the idea that uh, campaign spending buys elections, that, uh, that the more money you spend in an election, um, the more power you will necessarily have, and therefore the more that you'll be able to control what government does. So um, uh, if, if your view is if you want to have you know, control of or influence over government, um, obviously, you want to control the, uh, the extent to which other people can influence government, and that's kind of the motive behind campaign finance laws. It's to uh, it's to prevent what um, the the people who support these laws believe is a kind of uh, undue influence by uh, powerful interests that are uh, essentially taking the reins of power and using government to their own ends. And typically the, the interests that they're talking about are the interests of the rich and companies and business and big cor corporations. And so I, is there actual evidence for that? There's certainly anecdotes that we hear about, you know, people who give a lot of money yeah. and then get some special favors. But what's the big picture uh, in your estimation? Yeah, so the, the way I would think about it is that, I mean, there's a lot missing from this equation. Um, so people say that money influences politics. My view, or that too much money is influencing politics, my view is really kind of the opposite. Uh, the reason that money influences politics is that politics influences money. In other words, government influences everything we do these days. 
it makes perfectly good sense for people to want to influence what government does, right? So in order to have a view of how much influence money should have over politics, we have to have a view of what politics should be doing and what government should be doing. It's, and, and this is part of what's left out or it's, it's couched in, in other ways. What is the proper role of government over our lives? That's the central question that we should be focusing on, not who is trying to influence government or how much influence they're having. What should government do? That's the key. Because uh, without answering the question, what should government do, we can't, influence, we can't evaluate who, who should have influence over it or, or what, uh, how, to, how to assess you know, who is having influence over it, right? So if, uh, you know, if, uh, if a band of mobsters wanted to take over the government so they could oppress all of us, obviously that would be bad for them to be able to influence government. But the ultimate issue there is what they want to do with government power. So we can't separate the question of what government should be doing from the question of how people are influencing it and who should be able to influence it. So that's a central question. And to cut to the, to the bottom line, the purpose of government is to keep us free. It's to protect our rights. It's not to uh, redistribute our income. It's not to regulate business. I mean, there's a whole lot to say about that. But the, what you see is the more power that government has to control our activities and our lives, the more incentive people have to, uh, to influence it. Um, so the first point is, if government is going to control our lives, people are going to want to influence what government does. Now, a lot of people look at uh, big government, let's say, and special interest influence over government and issues like cronyism as a simple matter of if you give government the ability to hand out favors, people are going to try to influence government to get those favors. I, that's definitely true in some sense, but there's, there's a deeper way to look at this and to think about it and to bring a kind of moral perspective to it um, and to, because we really should be uh, distinguishing between um, proper moral good efforts to influence government and improper, immoral, oppressive, or horrible uh, efforts to influence government, at least in how we evaluate what people are trying to do. Um, so we, we, we have to make a distinction between government acting properly and protecting our freedoms and people who are influencing government to try to get it to do that are entirely defensible and entirely moral and are that, that's the kind of influence that we ought to support. Um, so, for instance, I mean, a good example I often refer to is the Koch brothers, who by and large are trying to shrink the general uh, size and scope of government. And their effort to influence government, I think, is generally on the right track. They have good views of government, again, as a general matter. Um, and their influence is actually a beneficial, good influence. And yet, if we look at the way these debates uh, tend to play out, the Koch brothers are among the most hated influencers of government out there. Yeah, I mean, that it's striking to me. So one of the rationalizations for not letting people spend a lot of money on campaigns or in influencing government is that it allows these so-called rich interests to dominate. But if you look at the Koch brothers, it's exactly the opposite. It's a bunch of intellectual minorities, people who support unpopular pro-free market views who would have never been able to gain a voice were it not for them. We don't receive, I don't think, any significant Coke money here, but uh, research done by Cato, by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, if the Cokes were restricted from doing that, there's a lot of important work, whether you agree with it or not, that simply wouldn't get done. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the interesting thing about the Koch brothers is that their political influence, meaning their, their political spending, spending for political campaigns, has long been a really small part of what they spent their money on. It may still be a small part, 
of what they spent their money on. But in recent years, I think in the Obama years, they've they've kind of ratcheted up their political spending because they've realized um, that uh, that you know that they have to influence the political system uh, to some extent uh, more than they have been doing in the past. But for many years, decades. Going back to the 70s, these guys were spending money on think tanks, basically, on educational efforts that were, generally speaking, pro-free market uh, efforts. That is, efforts to educate people and to get people to think about what type of government we ought to have and to educate them in free market thinking. And yet today they're pilloried as these uh, supposed plutocrats who are trying to take over the government uh, and, you know, the, the, the question or the, the nobody ever carries that to its logical conclusion. In other words, what exactly are they trying to do with all of this influence? And the answer is, if you, if you look at what they're really doing and what they're really spending their money on, is they're trying to increase freedom. They're trying to shrink the size of government. They're trying to limit what government does. So it's a really good example of how arguments about money in politics fail to really take a hard look at what is it that that money is trying to do. So just to make the point perfectly clear, we ought to celebrate people who are influencing government to try to put it in its proper place. Uh, we ought to condemn and criticize those who are trying to influence government to expand its power and ultimately to oppress us or violate our rights. That's an absolutely crucial distinction. Uh, one more way to think about this is that I tend to look at this view in the same, or this issue in the same way that I look at freedom of speech, right? So we recognize that everybody has the right to speak out in a free country, but recognizing that they have that right doesn't mean that we necessarily support what they say. So if I'm evaluating how somebody is using their right to free speech, I'm evaluating what the nature of their ideas are and what the consequences of those ideas are, right? So I don't just say somebody is speaking too much if I, if I don't like what they're saying. I'll criticize what they're saying, and I'll say that, uh, that we, should, we ought to condemn them and disagree with them for speaking that way, although I would support their right ultimately to speak. It's the same basic idea, I think, with campaign finance and with money in politics. Everybody has to have a right to try to influence the government, but we need to evaluate why they're doing it and what ultimately the, the results of their ideas and that influence would be. So I want to go back then to this idea of the purpose of government. So you raised what your view of the purpose is. Obviously, we share that view. Now, the way that it will be put often by the inequality alarmists is, well, our view of what government should be doing is it should have a well-functioning democracy where we actually make sure that the government's doing what's in the public interest rather than the so-called special interest. And that the whole problem with money in politics is that it allows these really rich voices to dominate the discussion so that what the government does is not what's genuinely in the public interest, but in the special interest. So can you contrast... Now, the, there's something fishy about that argument because it's not really a, what the purpose of government is. They never tell us what is in the public interest, or at least uh, not in this context. So how do you compare your view of what you say the government should be doing to that sort of view? Yeah, so I think that that is a view of government that kind of builds right into it what I'll call a collectivist view of government without admitting that that's actually what's going on. Uh, and now there's a lot to unpack here, and that, but, but there are, I think, two things to understand, generally speaking. One is we are not a democracy, and the purpose of government cannot be held to be the, quote, public good, the public interest, 
you know, serving the will of the people, the common good, all of these general uh, vague terms like this that are inherently collectivistic because they look at the purpose of government as serving some general will of all of the people, which ultimately means what? It means the government has the power, the force of law, to control your behavior and to devote your life in some sense to some general or common purpose, which the, the first question we ought to ask is, what does this even mean, right? What does it mean to say that the government can control my life or pass laws um, and devote you know, my life to the, to the common, common good? The, 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 the simple answer is what it ultimately boils down to is an excuse to control my behavior or to, for some people, essentially, to use the power of government, which is the power of force, the force of law, to control the actions of other people. That's, a, that's kind of a, I would call it an excuse for some people to oppress others. Uh, because after all, what we're talking about is the power of government, which is the power of the force of law, which you know can force us to take particular actions. But it erases any uh, distinction or any analysis about what government ultimately should do, what the purpose of our lives is, and what government's role in our, in our lives uh, is. In other words, what, what should government force be directed to and why? And it, so it, it effectively builds right into it a statist or a collectivist view of government right from the outset. And that's, that's, the, that's the literal meaning of democracy. Democracy means majority will. It means that the people get to vote for um, what the government will do, which means they get to vote to use the force of law, which is you know, the, the power of force that government holds, to, to, for any purpose that the majority sees fit to do. If you look historically, I mean, the results of this are catastrophic. Um, and the founders, by the way, uh, did not believe that our country was a democracy. They thought, de they thought democracy was a horrible uh, form of government for precisely the reason that it erases the distinction uh, between good and bad government uh, and just erects the, the power of voting to, uh, you know, as the, as the only uh, way of, of understanding or deciding what government should do. Um, so the, the first problem with thinking of our government as a democracy is that it's inherently collectivistic and it just erases that, uh, that discussion from the table. The second issue is to, to evaluate how a democracy actually works in practice. And this is part of what's fascinating about all of the money in politics and campaign finance and corrupting government arguments. Because just to, to get to the bottom line, I would put it this way. Um, democracy is the system of constant pressure group warfare. Another way to put it is democracy is the system of corruption. All of the things that the people who complain about money in politics complain about, special interest warfare, pressure group warfare, uh, trying to influence government to get it to serve you as opposed to serving you know, the interests of your neighbor, um, money in politics, gigantic campaign spending, campaign, uh, spending on, on campaigns, cronyism is another uh, thing we could talk about. All of these things, in one way or another, relate to the nature of how democracy has to work in practice. So, you know, one of the big ironies here is that the very same people who want more democracy are also the same people who complain about the corruption, the supposed corruption of democracy. What they either don't understand or are ignoring is it's the, the very uh, type of government that they advocate that leads to all of the problems that they then turn around and call corrupt. 
Yeah, part of what's disingenuous about it, and I was kind of indicating this earlier, is that they say, well, what we want is to create a democracy so that people can decide in the public good. But if you look into their views further, they have a definite view of what the public good is. Basically, it's yeah. the far-left agenda, including the agenda to fight economic inequality, specifically by taxing, regulating rich people. And so they, in effect, see our failure to implement that policy as proof that democracy isn't working. If democracy was really reflecting the will of the people and the public good, we, we would – and that's why they look back on this period from the New Deal until the 1970s as a golden age of democracy. Look at all the wonderful things that the government was doing for the public good. And so there's a way in which they would argue that your vision of what the government should be doing, I mean that's – to the extent that we free people, democracy has failed. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good insight. So another way to think about this is that built into the idea, you hear this idea of corruption constantly from the people who support campaign finance laws. Money is corrupting politics. Influence is corrupting politics. The rich businessmen, the plutocrats are corrupting politics. Um and if you really examine this idea of corruption, what it amounts to is this. Politics is not turning out the way we want it to, right? It's not leading to more of a welfare state, more, of, more entitlement programs, and more control over individuals' lives. As you put it, it's the leftist agenda. Uh, and that's absolutely true. And I mean, the more you study this idea of corruption, that's in, you know, it's embedded in the laws and it's embedded in the kind of popular discussions of this, the more you realize that by corruption is a kind of stalking horse, or it's a, it's a, it's a term, a vague term that they use that, that covers up the fact that what they're ultimately after is power, control of government, so that they can achieve the ends that they want to achieve, which is a generally leftist or progressive uh, approach, which means controlling business and ultimately controlling the lives of you know, all of our lives. In, any, in, the, in, in ultimately the same way that, that, uh, that collectivists the world over and statists the world over have always wanted to control uh, politics. Uh, and it ends up at the same point. But, um, but their, so their, their whole you know, view here is, is, is uh, and, the, and the idea that they have or the view they have camp of campaign finance laws is a cover for the fact that they want to grab the reins of you know, power and direct government and politics to their own end. Um, and that, and that's a, a view that if you go back and you look at the origins of campaign finance laws and the ideas that led to these laws in the progressive era, you can even see it um, developing back then. Because back then you got, and this is in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you got the whole kind of uh, comparison or, or contrast between the so-called public good and the narrow selfish good. Right, so the idea of special interests, which is a, is today the, the the sort of one of the rallying cries of, of these people, special interests are, are influencing politics too much. Special interests was a term that essentially was uh, developed to refer to the business interests or the interests of you know wealth and capital that were opposing this regulatory agenda that was uh, developing or evolving during the progressive era. Uh, and they contrasted it with the public good. So the public good was equivalent to labor, the poor, and the welfare state. And the special interests, the narrow special interests were equated with, you know, to businessmen and wealthy people. So they, they ended up creating a whole 
public debate or a rubric that effectively delegitimized the, their, their enemies or the people that they were opposed to and held them as, you know, corruptors, outsiders who are trying to come and corrupt our pristine, you know, welfare state or our pristine democracy. Um, so at the very outset, the terms of the debate were, were established as big government, good, you know, narrow special interests who oppose big government, meaning people who want more freedom, bad. I think that's a, that's a really fascinating point. And maybe you could contrast it with how you think, because I think most people find that very plausible because it seems almost self-evident that you have these clashing interests. Yeah. And if you have these clashing interests, we have to be able to choose between them. And so we need a democratic right. system to do it. Now, I, my view, uh, I think you share, is that if we properly understand people's interests, there actually is no clash mm -hmm. And therefore, there's no need for this warring democracy to resolve them. Can you, if you agree with that, can you expand on yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Issue? So, so people, so the only thing that you could ever say is truly in the public interest. I mean, I, I hate the term. It's a bad term. But the only thing that could ever make sense that is literally in the interest of 100% of the people is freedom. Now, there's much more to say about this, obviously. But it's the freedom to pursue your life. It's the freedom to produce it's the freedom to, you know, exercise your rational faculty, to think, to produce, to flourish, to thrive, to do what it is that I certainly think and, uh, and we here at ARI think is the whole moral purpose of your life, the pursuit of happiness, right? I mean, we can, we can anchor this right in the Declaration of Independence. Um, and so the only thing that could be considered to be in the public good in, any, in the way that any government could ever pursue or, um, or try to accomplish is keeping people free. That's the only thing we can say is literally common to everybody, at least in a political sense. I mean, there are, there are common values and general values, but I don't want to get into that too deeply. But the bottom line is this. If government is keeping us free, it's acting in a way that is consistent with the interests of everybody. And it is, it is, uh, um, it's acting in a way that, uh, it, it's acting in the only way that government can actually act that uh, uh, that properly confines its power and and is uh, uh, you know acting in the interests of all of the you know the entire populace. It's it's essentially doing this. It's protecting us from criminals. It's allowing us to to operate freely and to keep what is our own. Um, if it act if it uses the power that it has the power of force in any other way it necessarily ends up, let's say, put it sort of um, uh, simply as favoring some people's interests over others. How does it do that? Well, I mean, the simplest way to, to, to see that is, say, trying to give somebody a living. The only way it can provide welfare or uh, a living to some people is by taking from others, right? The only way it can favor some businesses, let's say, over other businesses, let's, I mean, take the example of, uh, of domestic sugar producers, because we have sugar tariffs in this country, um, favoring sugar producers, domestic producers over, over others, is by restricting some for the benefit of others. In other words, it necessarily, when it goes beyond protecting rights, government necessarily uh, ends up uh, favoring some over others, using force to inhibit um, some interests over others, which necessarily puts people's interests uh, opposed to one another. It, 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 it is based on the idea, this, this view of government, that people's interests are inherently clashing. 
that that government or society is a zero sum game. For me to gain, I, you have to lose, and that which is false, right? People, I mean, there's much more to say about this, um, but uh, individuals' interests are in harmony. We can cooperate and we can produce if we understand what the proper moral purpose of government is and the moral purpose of our lives. Our, li- our, our interests are not necessarily in conflict. But when government goes beyond protecting our rights, it's necessarily choosing, you know, winners and losers is how you uh, often see this put in arguments about cronyism and, again, and about big government. Um, and people have no, uh, no choice but to influence government to use that power um, for their, you know, their own interests and opposed to others. Um, another way to put this is, is this, when force becomes the rule of human affairs, which is what government ends up doing when it goes beyond its proper purpose, people are necessarily going to defend themselves. If you see that the, uh, that the way politics works today is to tax or be taxed, you know, to regulate or be regulated, you are necessarily going to, to have an incentive, uh, indeed a, a proper incentive, to join into that process and try to influence the, uh, the, the influencers, the government officials that we vote for, in a way that benefits you um, and, uh, or at least prevents harm to you and, and oftentimes will, will kind of screw your neighbor. So it's very much a kill or be killed, you know, regulate or be regulated, tax or be taxed premise that, that modern politics is operating on. You can't blame people for entering into that process. If that's all they see, if, if what they see is, if I don't influence the government to prevent, uh, you know, uh, one group from taxing me and taking my income, um, if I don't operate in a way that's going to get the, the the favors that government has to offer, as opposed to having them, you know, extorted from me, then I'm going to get screwed. And uh, that's a that's a that's a view of government that holds that our interests are necessarily clashing, that to survive or to thrive, somebody else has to fail. Um, it's a kind of war of all against all mentality. And once we we let that happen, we really shouldn't be surprised that what ends up happening is we get the kind of, um, quote, corrupt system that many people are complaining about. So let me push back just a little sure. bit and play devil's advocate. Um, nobody's advocating silencing you from you know trying to uh, influence the government. What we're trying to do is just put everybody in an even playing field. Um, we're not trying to make some viewpoint take some viewpoints off the table. We're trying to make sure all viewpoints get on the table. Um, you know, we're not preventing you from supporting politicians you like. What we're doing is preventing anybody from supporting them too much. What's wrong with that? Um, so two things. Um, it's impossible. I would guess to say it, put it this way. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's wrong in theory and impossible in practice. Um, it's so the idea here is first that, uh, the public or the government has the right to decide how much everybody should speak and what is too much influence, which is really contrary to the idea of freedom. Freedom means I have the freedom to speak a little bit or a lot. And if we hold as I do that we have to be able to influence the government, which is inherent in a free government, in a free uh, society, and a government that uses, as, as ours does, and rightly so, 
um, uh, the idea of representation, that is, that politicians represent our interests. Um, influencing government is inherent in the whole idea of the consent of the government. So a free country uh, means that you should be and you have to be able to influence the government. Ultimately, um, uh, uh, if that's true, if I'm right about that, that we have the freedom to speak, influence other uh, individuals in voting for governments, um, voters, and, and, and what they think about government, um, to put a restriction on that and to say some people are speaking too much is necessarily a violation of, let's call it the right to free speech, but there's much more to it than that. It would end up being a right to the uh, freedom of association, the right to petition your government, all of which is protected in the, in the First Amendment. So freedom, the first point is freedom means freedom to make your own decisions. It doesn't mean the freedom to do as much as the government wants you to do up until the point at which the government says or the public says, well, now you've gone too far. That's not freedom, and it's wrong to call that freedom. Now, as a more practical matter, just thinking about it from the standpoint of restricting the amount of money people can spend, let's say, on their speech or on influencing the government, and there are a number of ways this happens, either spending money on my own speech or spending money to give to governments. Let's just take the simple exa example of, of spending money on my own speech. It, saying I'm going to restrict the money you can spend to speak out necessarily means saying I'm going to restrict what you can say. It has to mean that ultimately because, um, because uh, in order to speak to really anybody in today's world, and in fact in any world, any large number of people, you have to spend some amount of money. And if we, if we say we're going to restrict the money that you can devote to your speech, whether it is to print up postcards to send to your neighbors, and I've actually had lawsuits that involved exactly that, people printing postcards and sending them to their neighbors. That costs money, and we get to restrict that. Or, I mean, take anything that you want to do. Buy a laptop, you know, um, uh, uh, speak out over the Internet, speak in any context, print up signs. All of it costs money. It all requires effort. It re all requires the types of things that we buy. If you're going to restrict what people can spend on that, you're necessarily going to restrict the speech. There's just no way around that. That's a... That's just a question of logic and, you know, physics in a sense. In order to, to speak, you have to do things. That costs money. If you restrict the money, you restrict the speech. Um, and what we'll see, what you actually see, if you look at the history of campaign finance, is that the first effort is to prevent uh, you from giving money to a politician. So what's the logical uh, reaction to that? Well, if I can't give money to a politician to support him, right, to let him spend the money on his own campaign and produce the speech he needs to get elected, the logical thing is for me to spend it on my own speech, right? So I'll just go and I'll buy an ad. Well, if the first, pre if the premise is, is going to operate uh, properly, if that's going to work, if we're really going to prevent you from benefiting a candidate too much, well, we can't allow you to go and spend the money on your own speech, right? Because that would just that would just be an end run right around the law that we just passed. That's called a loophole, right? We've got to close that loophole. How do we close that loophole? Well, we're not going to let you spend as much money on your own speech. Maybe we'll say, well, you can't run too many ads near an election. Or you can't, you know, run, you can't uh, speak out on in broadcast ads. So we'll, we'll prevent you from doing that. But you still have the opportunity to speak out in newspapers and online and then so what do people do? They spend lots of money on newspaper ads. And then the people who support the campaign finance laws come back and say, oh, this is another loophole. we got to close that loophole. And, I mean, we've seen this play out. You can, the history of campaign finance laws is the history of people avoiding the laws and then closing those loopholes, which means people finding ways to speak 
that weren't captured in the laws before, and then the regulators coming to meet those and, and re restricting them. Just let me give you one final example just to tie this point uh, up. Recently, the, the FEC has been looking into the idea of restricting Facebook posts and what people say on the Internet. Why? Uh, much of campaigning today is done on the Internet. That obviously influences campaigns. It is obviously a way for those who have more money and more time and more ability to influence campaigns more than everybody else. So logically, if you accept the, the premise of campaign finance laws, everybody has to say, have the same influence. It makes perfectly good sense for them to say we're going to reg regulate and restrict the Internet. So you can see there's this, there's this necessary um, process. Once you accept the premises of we got to make everybody's influence equal, that anybody who is able to influence a little bit more has to be restricted and, and kind of beaten down. Yeah, so we're a, a little bit over time, but I, I do have one more question, but it just is striking to me. Uh, the connection to the inequality debate is so um, tight in that you see what we argue is that there's a fundamental conflict between free trade and economic mm -hmm. uh, equality. And clearly there's a fundamental conflict between free speech and speech equality or influence equality in that um, – you know, freedom means that some people are going to be more influential than others. Even if you took away all the money, some people are going to be more eloquent, more charismatic, more interested in speaking. But what I want to end on is if you can just say a few things about um, why the economic inequality alarmist, why this is such an important issue from them. You said a little bit about what you think they're after, but if you could just kind of highlight why this is not a sideshow in the debate, but a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, they know that to achieve their ends, they need to control government, and they need to control what government does. Um, but I think there's something more, uh, which is early what you said, your, your point, that, um, that they are just as interested in controlling freedom of speech as they are in controlling you know, a free market. So Ayn Rand once said, a free mind and a free market are corollaries. They go together. And if you want to control our actions, you ultimately have to control what we think and what we say and vice versa. And I think that the, the inequality uh, warriors, so to speak, understand this on some level. And the same thing that motivates their desire to control our actions in the, in the market motivates their desire to control our ability to speak and our ability to uh, uh, really to, you know, um, our ability to, to be free thinkers and to uh, speak and communicate and in influence others. Um, what they ultimately want is to control us. And, and you can really see that um, desire at, at uh, work in campaign finance debates. I mean, uh, one of the, the key... Uh, rallying cries of um, people who support campaign finance laws is that those who uh, speak too much drowned out the voices of those who uh, who don't get as much uh, time or have the most as much ability to speak. I, it, that phrase bothers me. No, because drowned out. It's one of those metaphors that doesn't mean anything in reality. Because yeah. you can it, all it means is that people don't want to listen to you. That's right. That's and it's completely stupid. I mean, it's utterly counterfactual, so to speak. I mean, it's completely nonsense, especially in today's world. Uh, I often point out, you know, 
uh, if, you, if you're worried about being drowned out, go on the internet and take advantage of money, one of the many millions of ways to speak you know, to an ever greater group of people. So it's totally stupid. But it really is. I mean, what it ultimately comes down to, I think, is it's egalitarianism in action. I mean, what does egalitarianism mean? If everybody is going to be equal, anybody who stands above the crowd has to be chopped down, right? It's the only way to make people equal. You cannot equal up. You have to equal down. It's not metaphysically possible to make people equal without chopping down the, 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 you know, the tallest or the most articulate. In this context, it's, it's not just the, most, the people with the most money. It's the people who are the most articulate, the people who are the most active. Notice that in the IRS scandal, who was at the heart of the IRS scandal? It wasn't really rich people, and it wasn't con- convincingly you know, rich people. It was Tea Party groups. Now, why were they singled out for special um, investigation by the IRS? Here's the reason. They were speaking the loudest and the most effectively at that time. They were real agitators. They were grassroots agitators. And the, the, those who are in favor of big government are particularly afraid of anybody who really smacks of kind of the ordinary citizen, the people that they purport to be trying to, to protect. They can't handle the idea that the average American would oppose their views. And that's what the Tea Party was doing. But they weren't t- tremendously well-financed. They were very active. That's exactly why the IRS ended up going after them. And, and you can see, I mean, there's a, there's a public record on this of, of it's primar- predominantly on the left, um, politicians writing to the IRS and saying you've got to go after these Tea Party groups. This is outrageous that these people are being able to speak uh, in a way that that uh, uh, that is you know influenced politics um, more than they should be. These were not well-funded rich people. They were just active, uh, often articulate people. But in any event, loud voices that were really having an influence. I mean, the, the logical uh, consequence of egalitarianism is you have to chop down anybody who stands outside of the group and, and, and might um, have you know, some influence uh, or do something better than everybody else. My guest today has been Steve Simpson. Steve, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thanks, Don. No wrap of today. It's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.